Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Queer Not Here, where we're sharing the stories of LGBTQ Malaysians who've migrated away from Malaysia. I'm Nez, and this episode I speak to Y, a gay man and professor of communication at St. Louis University in Missouri, USA. Y is the research partner to Hemla, who you may have heard in our previous episode, and he talks to me about what it was like coming out and learning about gay culture later in life, and also about the research he does with Hemla on LGBTQ relations. Thanks for supporting this podcast and enjoy the episode. Um, would you like to be anonymous or are you okay using your name? I am absolutely fine using my name. Okay. At, at this point of my age, it's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. Uh, and your location also okay, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. And how do you identify? Identify myself as a cisgender gay man, and I go with the pronoun he, him, his. Great. Thank you. All right. So let's go back to when you left. When was that? When did you leave Malaysia? I left Malaysia for. Lexington, Kentucky, for my bachelor's degree in the fall of 1992. So that was really a long time ago. Wow! And have, did you just stay on after that? You never moved back. Well, I stayed on for my masters after my bachelor's, and I never did get home to Malaysia until my second year during my master's program. So. It was really a long time I have not seen my family since I first left for my education here in the U.S. Was it the was it kind of the plan to migrate or was it? Did oh, that it wasn't. Right. It wasn't. I wasn't even planning on migrating at that time. The goal was only to get an education, and that's exactly what I did. So I focus on my education, bachelor's, and then continue on with my masters. And after the masters. I went back home and taught at Sunway College for about two years before I made up my mind to come back for my PhD. So that's exactly what happened. So what decide? What made you decide to go back? This is a very good question, and in fact, after my masters, when I got back to Malaysia and work at Sunway College, I literally thought that I could change the world. I mean, whatever thing that is happening in Malaysia, I thought I could make some kind of contribution with my master's degree, and then I realized very quickly in that country, having a master's degree it's no big deal, right? Because there are a substantial number of people with master's degree, and the people don't even care whether you have a bachelor's or master's. So whenever I try to provide. Innovative ideas or, or new plans and things like that, I literally got shot down very quickly. Even though I do have the training and expertise in making proposals and things like that, and because of the multiple experience that I had, I would say negative experience, I realized very quickly that having the master degree is not enough. What I do need is really the title, Doctor Wiesian Chia. And that's exactly what motivated me in returning to the University of Kentucky to get my doctoral degree. And were you out at all at that point? 
In fact, no, I came out only after my doctoral degree. As someone who is into education, I focused primarily on my education. I never did dwell into my sexual identity at that time, even though I have the inkling that I like the same sex, so to speak. But I never did pursue that part of my life. I was just focusing on my uh, education. And literally, I came out very late. I didn't even know what is it like to be gay until I met my then boyfriend, now husband, right, Benjamin. And he pretty much taught me about the gay culture. What is, like, what is it like to be a gay man and so on and so forth. So I was very fortunate in that sense. I mean, after having come out at the age of 28 and not knowing a whole lot, it was not that easy, so to speak. But I adapted with the help of my uh, spouse. Mm, what, was, what was not easy about it? Because uh, as someone who was raised in Malaysia, I was literally taught primarily the heteronormative behaviors. Mm. But as a gay man, you know, right? It is different. So making that adaptation was a little difficult. And then getting into the nitty gritty stuff about intimacy with another man was also a challenge. But slowly but surely, through the help of Benjamin, I, I literally got through the process. So uh, it, was a, it was a good journey. And the good news is that we did spend some time getting to know one, one another really well. And then he moved in with me before we were ready to really say our commitment, so to speak. So we tested the water and then both of us realized that we, we can trust each other. We want each other in our lives. So that was essentially what we did. We literally lived together for a couple of years before we made our commitment. Nice. So the, so the first time you went to the States for your undergrad and master's and all that, you didn't like explore the gay scene or anything like that? No, not in Malaysia. Not even during my, my, my education at the University of Kentucky. I mean, of course, I, I did sort out some information on the internet at that time. The internet was developed not very long ago. So there's the thing like where I can Google for information. So I look up for quite a lot of information and I did read it up. I mean, things that are on paper is literally different in reality. So mm. I had to really make that adaptation. I mean, knowing stuff in theory is not enough. You do need to know what is it like when you really have someone right in front of you, right? So that was essentially the, the adjustment that I literally had to make. And how did that feel for the first time, kind of coming out and exploring all these new things? Very anxious because I did not know whether I'm doing the right thing or saying the right thing, right? And at the same time, I was also excited in the sense that I'm exploring something that was entirely new to me. So in essence, it's like a little child having a taste of a new candy and things like that. So that, that was exciting, but clearly it was uh, a contradiction, so to speak, right? Anxiety coupled with excitement. Mm. But I think that's but pretty normal if you're dealing with something that is new. But did you feel um, safe and secure enough to kind of explore all that there? 
Absolutely. I mean, with me being in St. Louis and St. Louis is a city, metropolitan city, and a lot of the people here are open-minded to a certain extent. So I felt safe in that environment back then. But of course, we did go to the gay bars, gay disco and things like that, but we never did try anything that is absolutely crazy. But at least I got to see what is it like to be in a gay disco or gay bar, right? With mm. Benjamin. So that's what we did. And how about your relationship with folks back home? Did that change? Did you come out to them? Did it? No, I, I never did. And in fact, in 2007, when I took Benjamin home to meet my family, I literally introduced him as my friend. Now, even though I did that, my nonverbal behavior literally betrayed me. And in fact, the way I talked to Benjamin, it was pretty close, right? Pretty tight. Mm. Only people who are very close to one another would perform those kind of nonverbal behavior. And believe it or not, my late stepmother literally saw the behavior and she ultimately confronted my father and told my father, and she said, what's the deal with your son? How come he is so nice to this white boy, right? It's your son playing gay. That was essentially what she told my father. I'm, I'm just quoting my father because the next day when we went to my auntie's house, we waited at the petrol station for my sister. So as we were waiting, my father literally told me what my stepmother told him and I didn't have the guts to tell him that I was in fact gay. He asked me, are you gay, right? I say, no, I literally told him that Benjamin was a good friend of mine. So I didn't have the guts or audacity to, to, to have the guts, I would say, not audacity, to tell him that, that I was in fact gay. And then a year later, when I went home by myself, I did exactly the same thing when he asked me the second time. So when I told some of my friends when I got back from KL, both times they literally laugh at me and say that why didn't you come up to your father when he presented you with that opportunity? Well, the reason why I didn't come up to him was because I think he knew deep down that I may be different. And then when he started saying some not so nice thing about gay people and then quoted uh, Leslie Cheung, right, a, a well-known singer from Hong Kong back then who committed suicide, jump, jumping out from a building. He literally said, don't, don't be like Leslie Cheung. It's not, not a good thing, right? Uh, normally, people who are gay are perceived as someone with mental health issues. So when I heard my father telling me those comments, I literally pulled back and did not want to say any further about who I'm really is so that that was essentially what i did on top of that i also try my best to suddenly inform them that i'm not interested in getting married and i'm also not interested in having children so i literally told them indirectly i am different and i repeated the same comment over and over again until it reached a point where they no longer asked me about getting married or even uh wanting to have children and things like that. So that's what I did. So mm. as someone who grew up in that culture, being direct is not something that we do, right? Mm. Because we are not 
talk to talk directly like Americans. So I used the indirect way and literally told my father and my stepmother that I don't plan on getting married or having any children, right? Even though he probed further and asked me whether I have any uh, issues in, in procreation and things like that, I literally told him, no, it's just that I don't like kids. So that, that was essentially what I did. It was the strategies that I did. And then I took Benjamin home for another time. I mean, if it's a friend, you don't take the person home that frequently, but that's exactly what I did. He did visit Malaysia again in 2012. So 2007 and then 2012, right? So that pretty much sealed the deal. Oh, did do you? So did they find out at that point, or they didn't? But how I know that they no longer are interested in my notion of wanting to to not get married was mm. they no longer ask me anymore. When okay. I took them to Hong Kong to visit my aunt's older sister, uh, my stepmother's older sister, I could remember vividly when my aunt asked my stepmother, right, I'm, when, when she's going to visit Malaysia and things like that, and she literally stated, uh, if one of your child get married, then I will come and see you. And my stepmother literally said, oh, when my youngest son get married, then I will invite you over to Malaysia. So literally, even though I was there, my name was bypassed, right? Technically, mm. I'd be second oldest son, right, mm -hmm. who's not married, if anyone were to ask about marriage and the family, it would be me. But somehow during that conversation, my stepmother and my father bypassed me. Instead of talking about me getting married, they literally say, well, when my youngest son gets married, then we will invite you to Malaysia. So that's how I knew that they knew, right, even right. though never did talk about it directly. I mean, that's how Malaysians talk to each other especially when you're dealing with sensitive topic like sexual identity and so on and so forth mm. and the second thing that i realized that my parents my my father and my stepmother knew is that one chinese new year when i call my father literally asked me whether i'm happy i say i'm really happy right life is really good i have a secure job everything is absolutely fantastic and he wish me happiness and he literally stated that as a father I want all my children to be happy and I hope you are in fact happy so my father is not someone that would express this sort of things but somehow in that particular Chinese New Year he uttered those words and it literally surprised me and that's when I realized that he probably know that I'm doing well personally mm, mm, that's really nice yeah um, so it sounds like you go back, you come back quite a bit. Yeah, I try my best to come back uh, once a year, but the pandemic literally destroyed my plan. But aside from uh, my father and my stepmother, my sister did ask me and stuff like that. And I did tell her a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, that I do live with uh, Ben. She know who's Ben is because she did meet him when Ben visited Malaysia the first time. So she knew that I live with Ben. I mean, what more do you want to say? 
but I, I told my younger brother that I revealed this particular information to my sister. And I asked my younger brother to keep an eye and see whether or not my sister uh, would talk to my father about what I told her. But apparently, according to my younger brother, she did not. But the only person in my family who really knew who I really is, is my younger brother, right? Because he asked me and he saw a ring that uh, Ben gave me. And he did ask me, are you married? I said, yeah. I, I married and when did it happen? I say it was back in 2012, right? So I literally told him and, and he, I do have a very good relationship with my younger brother. So we talked a lot about certain issues and, and one of the issues is literally about my sexual identity. Hmm. How, was, um, how was getting married? We didn't have a big celebration. And in fact, we did not even inform Ben's parents about us getting married because the year before we had our civil union right mm -hmm. we had our civil union and folks knew that we were getting our civil union so we did go out and and eat right we celebrated the occasion i had a few friends that tagged along all right and and witnessed our civil union and after our civil union when the u.s was making progress with gay marriage and at that time, not all 50 states have uh, gay marriage, only about half, I would say. And because at that time, the federal government did recognize, right, civil union and, and also gay marriage and also the perks of being married in terms of taxes, we decided why not get married because it's going to help us with our income taxes and things like that. So that's what we did. We flew to San Francisco and, and we got married in the city hall, right? Mm. And the judge pretty much presided the whole process. And it was beautiful. It was around Christmas time. So we did what we did was right. So only after we got married and during Christmas celebration, when we broke the news, even though Ben's mother at that time was not very happy because we didn't reveal anything to anyone in the family, partly because we did celebrate our civil union. We decided we'll just keep it hush-hush. We'll just let people know after the fact. And that's exactly what we did. And I know Ben's mother wasn't happy, but too bad, right? <laughs> it was a done deal. So that's, that's exactly what we did. Are you close to his family? Yeah, we, I am. And in fact, we do get together like Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and even Mother's Day and Father's Day, we, we get together and have a meal. If not, we'll probably go out and eat somewhere. And that's what we do. So nice. sometimes we find it a little too much to have things to do like once a month. So we try our best to only go to the major festival celebration and not all the little, little things like mm. birthdays and things like that. Um. Do you know a lot of Malaysians? Are you friends with a lot of Malaysians there? Yes, I do. And in fact, we do have a Malaysian group uh, that do celebrate potluck, not just Malaysian, but also Singaporeans. Because mm. there are not a lot of Singaporeans here. So because the person who organized the event knew quite a number of Singaporeans, it became a joint event, so to speak, a Malaysian slash Singaporean 
four potluck in the park or something like that. Any excuse to get around food, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there are some folks who cook fantastic Malaysian food, so we get to savor the Malaysian food. Is that something you feel like you need to have Malaysians around you? Uh, yes, I do, but not a big, big group. You only need a few, right? Partly because when you meet up with them, you get to speak your Malaysian English, where I get to say la, meh, right? Paul, this kind of <laughs> Malaysian slang that we often use when we talk to each other. So I do savor those moments because it brings back good memories about Malaysia. So that's what we do. Even when I talk to my good friend, uh, Dr. Hema Singer Radalu, when, whenever we get together, we don't speak like when we talk to our students or colleagues, it'll be the Malaysian English, right? And then we will combine different languages together. And I believe only Malaysians would do that. And yes. we would be able to understand each other when we mix different languages together, right? Mm. So that's the, the unique thing about being a Malaysian abroad. Uh, so how, how big would you say is your Malaysian identity a part of you there? I, I think it's really half-half. I would say I'm really bicultural in the sense that I've been in the U.S. for so long. I've learned quite a lot about the U.S. culture and I have uh, gotten used to the cultural norms here and I've adapted pretty well. But that doesn't mean that I have forgotten about my Malaysian Chinese identity. So I cook my Malaysian food pretty often, right? I do eat my rice. Without rice, it would be difficult, right? So when you come over here with um, Ben, Ben is it? Yeah. Um, are you at all concerned about being a married gay couple in this country? Or is uh, he? Not really. I, if I go back, probably I would introduce him as my partner rather than using the term husband, because I think when you are addressing someone in a country where gay marriage is still not accepted, it makes no sense to utilize the word husband because you're going to confuse people. But I think Malaysians do understand what a partner means, right? So using the term partner is much more appropriate rather than a husband. Even nowadays, when I meet folks who are from China, right? When I try to introduce Ben to them, rather than using the term husband, I would still use the term partner because I think mm. it's more appropriate to the context because not everyone understands what's a husband, right? Unless they are from a country where gay marriage is acceptable. Mm. But that's only my personal opinion. Do you do the same or do you ever get kind of nervous or anxious if you meet a Malaysian there that you don't know? And you don't uh -huh. know if they're, you know, kind of accepting or not? I probably would not immediately let them know that I'm gay unless they ask me, right, where's your wife or something like that. And then I'll just tell them, I don't have a wife, but rather a husband, right? So if people don't bring it up, I wouldn't just simply reveal, right? What I would normally do is that I would gauge whether or not the person is conservative or, or progressive and so on and so forth. But as always, I don't immediately reveal my gay identity to others that I've met for the first time. 
Mm. Are there things about where you are now that you wish we had in Malaysia? Well, I would say the standard of living in Malaysia is a lot lower compared to the United States, right? Mm. So there are a lot of things that I can buy easily and, and cheaply if I'm in Malaysia. But if I want to buy the same thing in the US, it will probably cost a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. For example, if you look at the healthcare system, Malaysia mm -hmm. is very, very cheap, but in the US is enormously expensive. So it is the one thing that I dislike about the US is literally the healthcare system. The healthcare system is a business, not like in Malaysia where healthcare is really a right for the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I look at my father's ordeal with his heart attack a few years ago, I mean, when I asked my younger brother, how much did my father pay for his hospitalization and also his appendix removal surgery after the heart attack, my younger brother literally told me that he only paid 24 ringgit Malaysia for the processing fee, so to speak. The rest were pretty much paid by the government or something mm. like that. So that's dirt cheap compared yeah. to the amount that you would end up paying if you have the same kind of health issue like my father few yeah. years ago. You'd go bankrupt in the US, right? Exactly. Yeah, I think we really, um, we do take for granted how good our healthcare system is actually. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Even though the wait time is a little longer, but if it's an emergency case, you are going to get treated. How about your racial identity? Did that change at all once you moved to the US? How you see No, yourself? I still introduce myself as a Malaysian Chinese, even though I do have the Chinese heritage. But no matter what, I was born in Malaysia. So I always tell people I'm Malaysian Chinese, right? Mm. And the reason is because I do have the Malaysian identity. And of course, I cannot neglect the fact that my ancestors were literally from China. So I yeah. do have that Chinese heritage. So I always introduce myself as Malaysian Chinese. Initially, I thought, okay, now that I'm an American citizen, right, I would call myself an American. I mean, which is true. The national identity is in fact American, mm -hmm. but ethnically and culturally, I am a Malaysian Chinese, right? If I'm not Malaysian Chinese, I wouldn't be eating my Malaysian food, so to speak. I wouldn't be listening to my Mandarin, Cantonese, or even Malay songs, right? I mm. still have all my CDs that I purchased from Malaysia, and, and they're literally songs that I grew up listening to, and I still listen to them. And partly, I listen to them is to give me good memories about who I am, right, mm. as a Malaysian Chinese. Mm. Um, but do you, did being there kind of change the way how you see race relations back home here? Like, did that change in any way? Now, growing up in Malaysia, at least for my generation, I don't think race relation was an issue back then. I think we, we live harmoniously among the Indians, the Malay, the Chinese, and also the other folks. I could still remember at a very young age, because I live in Sungai Bersi, right, which is at least 30 plus miles away from Kuala Lumpur. I go to school in, in Methodist Boys School in KL, but I do live in Sungai Bersi, and it's literally a 
an army town where there's a lot more Malays and also Indians, right? All my neighbors are Malays, including Mamaks and things like that. So I grew up with them. I played with their children and things like that. And during our ethnic celebration, like Chinese New Year or Hari Raya or Diwali, we always visit each other's home and we greet each other, good stuff and things like that. So at that time, growing up in Malaysia, I never saw any issue with race relation, but race relation became something that is huge when I got to the United States, especially when I started teaching at Southern Illinois University at Westville, right? In fact, when I attended some of the racism workshop, not only I feel that racism was something that was created here in the United States, even colleagues of mine from different parts of the world, like Africa, from the continent of Africa, literally made the comment that they never consider racism as an issue, even in their home country, right? Only when they got to the US, racism, race relation issue becomes such a big deal. And I think race relation it's a big deal in the United States because of the history, right? Mm. Among the, the whites and, and the African-American folks. Right, right. Hmm. Uh, do you keep up with news back home? Yes, I do. I still read The Star and Burita Harian daily. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Star is for me to keep track. And then I read Burita Harian just to ensure that I could still uh, read in Malay. When right. it comes to speaking, it's still a little tough because I don't speak it enough, right? Mm. So, but I do understand the Malay language, but I could tell right now that the Malay language has adopted a lot of the English term. So oh, that's yeah. the one thing that I find interesting. If I didn't read Barita Harian, I wouldn't know that the Malay language have literally adopted a lot of the, uh, the English terms. How, how does it feel reading about what's happening back home? Uh, it keeps me abreast about what exactly is happening, especially when I'm so eager to get home to visit my family after not being home for about two years. So I do keep back. And then especially with the COVID numbers being so high right now, it, it in a way upsets me, right? Mm, I mean, mm. the, the Malaysian numbers were quite good initially, but this year somehow it went up. And it was in the opposite direction that mm. I did not expect. Yeah, even with our state of emergency. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you have plans to come home? I, do, uh, I don't mean to visit, though. I mean, like, to come back for good. Is that for the good? plan at all? Uh, not at the moment, because I do have my spouse here in mm. the U.S., right? and his family is still around. And I don't anticipate that happening because as a professor, I have tenure. So in a way I'm tied to my university. So until I retire, the plan of going home is still at the back burner. So even though sometimes I do threaten my spouse and say that I'm gonna just move back to Malaysia, I still have my Malaysian IC. So, I can still go back. <laughs> uh, tell me a bit about what you teach. 
I teach communication studies and, and my area of expertise is really health communication, particularly with health campaign design, implementation and evaluation. So health communication is literally my area of expertise, but I do teach intercultural communication, gender communication, including theory and research methods. But as a person who teaches communication, I also once in a blue moon teach public speaking or basic public speaking or even advanced public speaking, including uh, okay. the upper level course known as interviewing in communication or something like that. So right. I teach a variety of courses in communication studies, but my area of expertise is literally health communication. So I'm sure you've been very busy in the last year or getting a lot of data at least, <laughs> right? Yeah, I've been, I've been collecting data for my second sabbatical research study that focuses on uh, gay and lesbian Muslims live experiences in, in Malaysia. We are still collecting our data, so we'll see what happens from there. But based on the interviews that my colleague and I have conducted thus far, the data is getting much more exciting, right? Yeah. So we're hoping to hear a lot more from the other folks. So we will be doing more interviews. And, and after that, we will do some sort of preliminary analysis to see what emerged from our interview data. And then we will present our work in a conference. And after that, we might continue doing a few more interviews just to get more participants. And, and ultimately, if, hopefully we may result it in publication where we will get to share not only with our fellow Malaysians, but also uh, scholars who do this sort of work. Mm. Is, it, um, is there a reason why you choose to focus your research on Malaysia? Absolutely. I'm a Malaysian at heart, right? <laughs> and as a person who is gay, who never did learn about the gay culture while growing up in Malaysia, I, I believe it is time that we let people know that gay folks do exist in Malaysia and we do need to have their narrative be heard, their stories be told, and we need to normalize, right? LGBTQ plus individuals, so to speak. So if we don't do this sort of work, who's going to do it, right? At least we know since we are living in Malaysia and our career is not in, in Malaysia, there's nothing for us to lose, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to punish us, right? There's no negative repercussion in terms of our career, job, and livelihood because we are based here in the United States of America. So someone has to do it. But I know that there are some Malaysian scholars who have started doing this sort of work, but we do need to be a lot more critical, go deeper rather than the shallow level information and things like that. I think it is time that we need to get that done, especially with what I've seen happening in the news lately about right creating camps and things like that to, yeah. to make gay people straight again. Those are heartbreaking news that I find unwarranted so to speak yeah and it's scary that it's being said so blatantly right absolutely um and on that note do you think um 
have you seen a change for LGBT Malaysians since you left? Absolutely. I think based on our, our interview, particularly with the younger folks, I think they know a lot more about the terminologies that we use here in the Western world. So mm. that was a little surprise. But I think the older folks are still a little reluctant. And mm. in fact, we did conduct an interview with a person who was a lot older, who's a lot older, 52 years old, and we try to get this person to help us recruit the older folks. And, and when this person talked to the friends, right, the friends who are Muslims literally stated that because we are getting older and because we are closer to, to God, so to speak, it makes no sense for us to talk about being gay or being a lesbian right now because we are worried. If right. we talk about it, then our relations with God, instead of being closer, it will go further apart. So they, they didn't really want to be interviewed by us and talk about their lives. I mean, these are literally the older folks, but the younger folks are much more willing to open up about their lived experiences in mm. Malaysia. So that was something that we did not even thought of until this particular part participant inform us the reason why some of the friends did not want to be interviewed by us. I mean, this person tried very, very hard. And in fact, a gathering was, was put together by this individual and this individual invited friends over and the topic of us conducting research in Malaysia was being brought up. And unfortunately, only one person say yes, the rest say no. And the rationale was simple. They're getting older and because they believe that they are closer to, to God, they don't want to talk about the issue because they feel a little guilty. Right. So that was the interesting thing that came up from our conversation. That is super interesting. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to read your research. <laughs> um, so in that sense, do you feel hopeful? Yes, I do, because I think the younger folks uh, are willing to open up a lot more, but there are still some negative things that is happening. So folks are still a little cautious in terms of what they say. They're not going to come out right and, and, and criticize the government and criticize folks who are, uh, who are prejudiced towards gays and lesbians or the other non-gender Mm. folks, right? Mm. The non-binary folks, so to speak. So that is essentially what I've heard from the folks. They're still very, very careful. And, and some of the younger folks that I've approached and asked to be in a participant, the one thing that they say, right, that they're fearful of is their identity. They, they, they ask us, will my identity be protected and we we pretty much told them absolutely. So that's that's the one thing that we can guarantee them as a researcher because we do understand the sensitive nature of the topic that we are doing in our research project. Mm. Was this um was this the first research you've done on Malaysia or you done previous? Uh, actually, this is a follow up to a study that we did in twenty fourteen, which was published in twenty seventeen. Right back then. I did my first sabbatical research and 
I managed to interview gay and lesbian Chinese and Indians from Malaysia, and we did not include any Muslims in our study, partly because we know we needed to, to be cautious. And, and because we are non-Muslim, we know back then uh, it would be a challenge for us to recruit Muslims. So we pretty much concentrated on Chinese and Indians. And even for this second project, recruitment is a challenge, partly because we are not there in Malaysia. So if people are not able to see us face to face, listen to us when we recruit them for our study, it is absolutely difficult for us to get them to say yes to being interviewed by us, right? And one of our latest participants literally indicated that even when we write up our research, we may not have high credibility if we don't have anyone who is a Muslim, all right, on board with this project of ours. And fortunately, we do have a colleague from UPM who's a Muslim, right? Mm. She will probably be our third author. And, and whenever we write anything that deal with Islam and things like that, at least we have someone who is a Muslim who can verify the information and, and factual stuff that we will be putting in our paper so that we will not misrepresent Islam. Because religion is a sensitive thing. We know that growing up, as a Malaysian in Malaysia. So we want to ensure that we do not create strife among the participants and also potential readers of our work, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we are very careful and we do understand the sensitivity nature of our topic. Actually, how did you and Hamla get together? How did you guys meet? Well, in fact, after my PhD, my first job was at St. Louis University, and that's where Dr. Hemna Singha Ravalu was based, right? She was a family therapy and counseling professor at SLU. And in fact, I didn't even know about her until my good friend, Dr. Eilina Karamehich Muratovich, who's a Bosnian Muslim, right? She was introduced to Hemna, and when she told Hemna that Oh, my good friend, Wai Xianjia is from Malaysia. He's a Chinese. And when Hemla heard about me, another Malaysian at SNU, she got so excited. So that's how we ended up meeting. I mean, after our first meeting, we know we clicked immediately. And that's how we remain as friends and now as brothers and sisters, so to speak. She always tell people that this is my younger brother, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, it's a joy to meet another Malaysian. I mean, we, we get yeah. to really speak in our language, be who we are growing up in Malaysia. So that was literally the joy and one of the reasons why meeting up with Malaysian is such a wonderful thing. It brings back good memories about our childhood, so to speak. And how did you guys decide to pursue this research? Now, initially, I was the one that did my sabbatical research in 2014. I ran into some issue uh, with the literature review regarding the coming up process, partly because I was not trained, right? In, in that area, I was not a counselor. So I did not study the literature of coming up in greater depth. And the more I look at my initial draft, the more I realized that something was amiss. So I spoke to Hemla and I consulted her. I said, I wrote this paper, I know it's a, pretty good paper, but still something is lacking. 
And then when Hamla say we need to include, right, models that were proposed in the past talking about what is it like to come out, right, and things like that. And ultimately, we were able to realize that coming out is in fact a Western thing, right? Mm. So when I went back to my data and I asked people, when did you first come out? And in fact, some of my participants scratched their head and they literally asked me in return, what do you mean by coming out? So I realized back then that the term coming out is a Western term, right? Only the younger folks know what coming out is, but when you talk to the older folks, they don't know what coming out is. So as a communication scholar, I immediately changed my term. Instead of using the word coming out, I literally asked them, when did you first disclose your sexual orientation to another person? Rather than using that question, when did you first come out? So they didn't quite know what coming out meant, right? So when I say, when did you first disclose that you like man or did you like woman, a woman, so that's when they realize that, aha, this is when I did so, right? It's literally the same thing, but you can say it in a different way so that the people that you're talking to literally understand what you're literally asking. Mm. Um, okay. Do you, do you think you'd be the same person if you hadn't left Malaysia? This is a very good question. I know people change and people evolve. Mm -hmm. But I have a strong feeling that if I did remain in Malaysia and not come to the United States of America, I probably would not have learned a lot more about the US and also the true me, right? I would probably be still in the closet, right? Given the social and cultural norms of Malaysia. So I don't think I would have made much progress if I didn't come to the United States, right? I think education literally opened up my eyes and gave me the critical thinking skills that allow me to, to really distinguish what is right, what is wrong, how do I decide what is best for myself, right? I mean, if, if I stayed on in Malaysia, I'll probably listen to everything that my father, my stepmother, and my older siblings would tell me, but now I literally can stand on my own two feet, right? If there are things that, that I'm not happy or if I'm told one way and it contradicts my perspective and my values, I will voice my opinion. But if I do, if I did stay in Malaysia, I don't think I have the ability to, to counter, right? Mm. What I don't believe is right. Right. And what do you wish for the Malaysian LGBT community? What do I wish? I think they do need to normalize, right? Mm -hmm. What is it like to be non-heteronormative, so to speak, right? Need to let people know that we are human beings, right? Number one, right? Just because we like the op uh, the same sex doesn't mean that we are all different. And moreover, what we do in our bedroom is our own business. Who cares, right? So that's the one thing that the LGBTQ folks need to do, which is literally to normalize, let them know that, hey, rather than focusing on the sex part, why not just focus on us being a human being, a good son, 
a good boss, a good employee, and so on and so forth, right? We all have the same aspiration to be happy, maybe to have a better life for ourselves, right? And our family and so on and so forth. I mean, these are all things that we strive for as a human being. Why not focus on the things that we can all agree on rather than focusing on the differences? Uh, okay, last question. Are there any sounds that remind you of home? Sounds that remind us of home. You know, honking is, is the one thing. The traffic <laughs> in Kuala Lumpur is the one thing that I will never, never forget, right? Because in okay. the United States, when folks drive, they seldom honk, right? Because mm. it is pretty rude if you honk someone, even though it's a minor, minor uh, issue when it comes to driving. But in Malaysia, you know, small, small issue, people will just honk and test right, right. And, <laughs> and, and, and for a long time, right? Okay. Well, thank you so much, Roy. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you and great seeing you. Too. You, you too. You too. Have a great week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Queer Not Here. If you'd like to give me feedback or have any inquiries about what was discussed in this episode, do write to me at queernothere at gmail.com or hit me up on IG at queer.nothere. If you're enjoying what you've been listening to, please do share with friends and family and thank you all for your support.